0: I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine's Soul. Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis-Mar joining us this week. Alexandra is a staff writer at National Review and a visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. A graduate of Notre Dame, her work has been published in The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and other publications. Ryan is a political philosopher and president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., He's a graduate of Princeton University and earned his doctorate at Notre Dame. He's written for The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Washington Post, USA Today, and is the author of multiple books, including a book he recently co-wrote with Alexandra, Tearing Us Apart, a book we're going to discuss a bit today. Alexandra and Ryan, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having us. Great to be with you.
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you. So we,
0: I think we ought to start by laying the foundations for the debate about abortion and the foundations for your book, because I think we see a lot of the names of various court cases like Roe and Casey and Dobbs thrown around quite a bit in the national media, on Twitter, columns, but they're marshaled in ways that can be a bit confusing and overly simplistic. And as you point out in the book, many Americans don't actually know what Roe did. So Ryan, can you start us off and, and give us some context for the abortion debate in the United States? What were the legal cases that ultimately brought us to Dobbs and what is the actual Dobbs ruling? What does it mean?
2: Sure. I mean, that's a, um, a huge question. So uh, lots to touch on there and we probably will you know, expand on this as we go. But I mean, the very first thing to say is that, you know, even before we get to the legal question of abortion, there's a moral question and a medical question, right? And the medical question is how many patients are there? Uh, if you are the doctor treating a pregnant woman, how many patients are you treating? Right? How many people are there? And that obviously is related to the moral question and a metaphysical question of, you know, are there two people there? Uh, uh, a scientific biological question about when the life of a human organism comes into existence, but then also a moral, philosophical, ontological, metaphysical, however you want to kind of like phrase it, a question of when does a person come into existence? Because obviously... You know, some theorists will say that human beings and human people are different things, different entities, or they have different moral value. There's you know a variety of forms of dualism. And so you can think about this, you know, there, there's a identity question of, you know, our personal identity, when do we come into existence? When do we have moral value? There's a medical question, you know, how many patients are there? What do I owe, who do I owe duties to when it comes to medical care? And then there's a legal question, and I and you know, that's why I, I kind of want to preface some of the legal debate with, you know, before we get to Roe or Casey or Dobbs, you know, there there's there some natural realities, some metaphysical realities, some moral realities, some medical realities that inform that. Uh, and so prior to Roe, the Supreme Court had said that the states and the federal government, you know, had the authority to make regulations respecting abortion as they saw fit, right? So as the people and their elected representatives thought was. Fitting, both for the protection of unborn human life, for the protection of their mothers, for the protection of medicine, the integrity of the medical field—I mean, those are just three of the reasons that Alito rehearses in in the Dobbs opinion. Roe does something, you know, kind of unique in American constitutional uh, uh, thinking, where it said an action that kills another human being is now protected as a constitutional right. Somehow, in the penumbras formed by emanations. There's a privacy right that extends to an act that is lethal. Casey then reaffirms the central holding of Roe. Uh, it doesn't say that Roe was correctly decided, right? This was more of a stare decisis style ruling where the plurality opinion says that, you know, their reliance interests, they don't affirm the reasoning of Roe, which was a privacy right. They now put this more on uh, a liberty interest. And then Dobbs more or less says that both Roe and Casey, the past 50 years of constitutional law with respect to abortion just got it wrong, um, that neither a right to privacy nor a right to liberty, nor, I mean, for, for, for this matter, what the most cutting-edge theorists of uh, pro-abortion jurisprudence wanted to suggest is that an equality right was, what was the foundation of, of abortion, that for women to be equal to men, they had to have access to abortion. Alito's majority opinion in Dobbs' simply says that the constitution does not protect a right to an abortion on any of those grounds, nor do the stare decisis considerations, uh, because stare decisis considerations are real. They are considerations that a court should uh, respect. But in this case, they were overweighed by the, he, he refers to it as the, it was egregiously wrongly decided, right? It wasn't just wrongly decided, but it was wrongly decided in a very significant way on a very important issue, because it's an issue of life or death. And in a way that hasn't been accepted by the American people Um, that, you know, for 49 years, we've had a march for life precisely because Roe didn't settle the abortion question. And so he said, you know, between getting the Constitution wrong and then not having the stare decisis grounds cut in the favor of upholding a wrongly decided case, the proper thing to do is to return this question to the citizens and their elected representatives.
0: Yeah, to get to that issue that you brought up initially, the issue of at hand when we talk about abortion, which is the question of, of when life begins. Because to me, if, if we believe that there is life, then it would be a much more difficult argument to make that there should be a, abortion, or unrestricted abortion even. In other words, as you say, there's a philosophical or moral question at issue here. So, Alexandra, can you, you, you and Ryan make the case in the book that life begins at conception? Can you describe for our listeners that case?
1: Sure. So we, the way we put it in the book in our, our first chapter, just establishing that abortion harms the unborn child, the first step in that argument is that this is, in fact, an unborn child, right? It's not a clump of cells. It's not a parasite. It's not you know a, a squirrel or an acorn or any other kind of living creature. It is a living human being. This case is actually pretty simple for as much as we hear the claim that, that this is actually about a clump of cells or, you know, some kind of strange organism, foreign organism growing inside the, the woman. It's very clear that this is a human being from the moment of conception and then it's alive. It has unique human DNA, unique from both the mother and the father, comes into being when the sperm meets the egg. None of this is scientifically disputable. And this is something that embryology textbooks tell us. So we know that this is true. And it's really only in the context of the abortion debate that people try to pretend otherwise, right? Um, I think this example gets used a lot. But if a coworker comes in and shares an ultrasound photograph, no one says great clump of cells or, you know, congratulations on your fetus. We all know that, that this is a human being and that when it's born, it'll be a baby and that it's the same baby, the same human being that it was before he or she was born. But because of kind of the logic of abortion, the way in which the abortion, you know, pro-abortion crowd wants to try and justify abortion, one of the ways they do it is to, to try and pretend that this is not a human being at all. And that saves them from having to, to move on to the more sophisticated arguments, the ones Ryan alluded to, or the one Ryan alluded to about, about personhood, whether or not a hu- every human being is a human person, whether every human being has moral worth. And so the, the kind of less sophisticated argument, I think, for abortion is, well, we don't even have to go to that place because we can just pretend that this creature isn't human at all.
0: Yeah. And there are a couple of objections to this that are I, I've seen brought up and, and that you address in, in the book. One is the argument about viability. A fetus is a living human being only if it can survive outside the womb. I, I think I've seen this kind of circulating um, and I've heard this argument made. Why is uh, viability not a magical dividing line or why is birth not a magical dividing line?
1: Well, I can I can take that. If Ryan has anything to add, you should feel free to do so. But I, I think the important thing to remember is that this this creature, once it comes into existence at the moment of conception, nothing changes about the essence of what that human being is, right? Its capacities change, but it is it comes into being from the moment of conception with everything it needs to continue developing all of its capacities that it will eventually have. And so the example we use in the book is Ryan's first son, Jack, who I think recently turned four when he was conceived, he already had the capacity to talk, but he couldn't talk when he was born, right? And that's, that's perfectly natural, but that doesn't make him any less of a human being. So the way we have to understand it as, you know, everything that a human being needs to grow into a a full newborn, a full child, a full, you know, young adult or adolescent, a, a full adult, everything is there from the moment of conception. And just because the child isn't exercising any of those particular capacities doesn't make it not a human. And in fact, it's perfectly natural for an embryo not to be able to talk or not to be able to breathe on its own, because that's exactly what an embryo at that stage of development does. And I think it's important to note too, and when it comes to the viability argument, a child who's just born can't survive on its own either, right? He or she can probably breathe or um, you know, do various other things that he or she couldn't do in the womb. But if he were left alone in a closet, he would die, as would a three-year-old. And so the idea that, that viability or somehow being able to, in quotes, survive on one's own is a, a marker of whether they're a human person is clearly ridiculous or if it's not, it would justify killing all sorts of other people in addition to the unborn.
2: I mean, I think what I would add to that is just to highlight what, what Alexandra was saying there is that you know there's a distinction between what philosophers will call kind of like root capacities and then immediately exercisable capacities. You know, My son today has an immediately exercisable capacity to speak in English. He has a root capacity today to speak in French, right? He can't do that yet, but he has the capacity to speak in French, provided you know he gets the right instruction, the right learning, et cetera, et cetera. What Alexander pointed out was that when he was conceived, he didn't have the immediately exercisable capacity to speak in English, just like he doesn't have the immediately exercisable capacity today to speak in French. But on his conception day, he had that root capacity to speak in English. He had the root capacity to speak in French, right? He had the capacity to keep developing to one day be able to exercise those underlying capacities. And that's more or less what philosophers mean when they talk about a nature, right? A nature is you know, a creature with a set of capacities or potentialities is another way of thinking about this. By contrast, the day that a new pig or horse or cow or goat or sheep or dog is conceived, they lack any capacity at all to one day speak, right? There's a difference in kind between the human fetus, the human embryo, and a non-human fetus or a non-human embryo. And that's why we say that the human fetus, the human embryo is a person in the relevant sense, right? Because it has a nature that entails these root capacities, these potentialities for personal activities in a way that non-humans do not have those uh, capacities, which is another way of saying it's not a potential life, right? It's a life with a certain set of potentialities, right? And I think that's also a really important distinction because sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, it's a potential person or it's a potential human, our argument no, it's, it's already a person, and it has this set of potentialities, these set of capacities built right into its nature. And then the second thing I wanted to add was, you know, a- Alexandra is exactly right when we say the, the argument about uh, viability. The newborn child and the newly conceived child are very similar in the sense that what they both need is a hospitable environment and nurture and care. Now, the type of hospitable environment and nurture and care that the newly conceived child needs is more radical than the type of hospitable environment and nurture and care that the newborn needs. And what the newborn needs is more radical than what the three of us need, right? But the three of us, to be viable, need a hospitable environment, and we need certain nurture and certain care. If you put us on the surface of Mars, we wouldn't be viable, unless we had various, you know, mechanical, technological equipment to make us viable there, right? when you see the astronauts land on the moon, for example. And so that's that's to suggest that there's nothing in principle different between the human child in utero, the human child ex-utero, and the adult, right? It's just a difference of degree, but we're all dependent, rational animals.
0: So Ryan, there's this Question I think that comes up quite a lot. And it you you and Alexandra mention it in the book. This question about the this violinist being attached to it, waking up with a violinist attached to you. It seems to be a very common argument against the pro-life position. Can you take us through this argument and how you respond to it?
2: Sure. I mean, the the basic argument here it was it was made most prominently and, and rigorously by a philosopher named Judith Jarvis Thompson. Uh, back in the early 1970s. I, I think if my memory is working, it's like 1971, 1972. So it's, it's even pre-Roe. Uh, and what she argued is she said, all right, let's just say for the sake of argument, you know, she wasn't necessarily committing herself to these positions, but she said, Let, let's say for the sake of argument that the, the uh, fetal human being is a human being and it's a human person. So it has the same moral status as you or me, uh, the same dignity, the same worth, from those two premises alone, we don't reach the conclusion that it has a valid claim to occupy the womb of its mother. And so the argument here, and then she used an analogy, to, uh, she said, let's say you go to sleep tonight and someone climbs in through your window and hooks you up to a famous violinist who needs to, I can't remember if it was your liver or your kidney, but you know he, he, he needs to more or less borrow some of your organs for nine months. And, you know, you're going to be plugged in to this famous violinist for nine months in order to sustain him. And then there's going to be a transplant organ, or then there's going to be a therapy. I forget, you know, all of the uh, particularities of, of the thought experiment at this point. But the basic conclusion was that you do not have, she argued, a moral obligation to remain connected, that if you wanted to, you could disconnect from the violinist without doing anything immoral. And so at the, the last section of um, chapter one of the book, Alexandra and I, you know, go through that argument. And then we have a number of, of, of responses. And what we point out is number one is just, you know, as an empirical matter, disconnecting from the violinist could actually be just a matter of disconnecting, right? You, you, you aren't intentionally killing the violinist. You're saying, look, I have other things I need to be doing in life. I didn't do anything to have an obligation to have you hooked up to me. And so I'm disconnecting, I'm unplugging uh, the tube that connects us. And that's different than the intentionality, right? The goal, the objective of um, the abortionist, which isn't just to separate the baby from the child, but it's to ensure that the child is dead. Um, That an abortion where the child survives the abortion is viewed as a failed abortion. That, That the objective, the intention, the purpose of the abortion wasn't merely to separate but it was to kill, right? And so, so that's one you know, kind of high-level distinction that we draw. Uh, but we also then point out that let's, for the moment, leave aside cases of rape where the mother obviously has not done anything to consent to the act of sex, where she herself has been violated and, and victimized uh, by the rapist. So leave those cases for now to, to the side. In the uh, per, 99% of other cases that lead women to seek an abortion, The woman has voluntarily consented to the action that created the life that is now dependent on her. So even if you have a a theory of moral obligation, that you only have moral obligations that you have somehow consented to or contracted into, which again, we think is a bad theory of moral obligation. But we want to say even for people who have that theory of moral obligation, both the mother and the father bear natural duties- to that child, that correspond to that child's natural right to life because they have done something that makes them responsible for that child's existence and that child's condition of dependency. Right, uh, a, a, a sexual action uh, has the capacity to result in conception and a newly conceived child is going to be dependent on the child's mother for you know, at least nine months in utero and then sometime thereafter. And that both mothers and fathers bear responsibility for their actions and therefore bear obligations to that child, right? So, so right there, you have two kind of like, you know, focal case ways in which the analogy just doesn't hold water, that it's, you know, significantly different than what's going on in abortions.
0: Let's talk a bit about abortion and medicine. You spend a, a chapter on this, and it's obviously relevant to the to the podcast at hand. And you make the point that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists is one of the foremost lobbying groups pushing for unlimited abortion on demand. Ryan, how did this come to be? How does this undermine good medicine? And what does this mean for obstetricians who are pro-life?
2: Sure. So, I mean, part of the history here is that if you look at the the rationale in Roe, it wasn't so much focused on women's equality or women's freedom. It was, you know, almost and and, and you know Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself, you know, uh, says things to this effect that it was focused much more on the freedom of the male doctor. Um, you know, we quote her in the book saying something to the effect of, you know, the picture that you get from Roe is that it's you know the big tall doctor who knows best and who's taking care of the small little woman who, you know, needs his judgment and his ability to decide when she needs an abortion, right? And so the emphasis was much more placed on the freedom of the medical professional to make these medical decisions, right? And so it was much more framed as a medical judgment than it was kind of like a lifestyle choice or an autonomy choice or an equal liberty or an equal dignity, you know, various arguments um, that have also been made to, to support abortion. And then what happens here is that you unfortunately have kind of capture, right? The, the, and we see this play out in a number of other bioethical issues, you know, current issues, you know, particularly related to, to medicine for gender dysphoria, where you have ideological capture of a small subset of a professional organization, right? And so it wasn't that the majority of doctors, let alone the majority of OBGYNs were supportive of abortion, but those who were supportive of abortion we able to gain the control of the various subcommittees that were writing the position papers that were doing various forms of advocacy. I mean, to the point that uh, you know, as we show, this is in chapter four of the book. You know, there are various lies that are told. You know, lying about the nature of the unborn child, lying about what modern medicine and science reveals about the unborn child, also lying about whether or not abortion is ever medically necessary and. Unfortunately, I think that that's what we've seen happen over the course of the past 50 years of how what originally was a nonpartisan professional organization had ideological capture on certain hot button cultural issues and you know transformed much more into an advocacy group.
0: An argument is often made that by banning abortion, we create a situation in which women are forced into back alley abortions. I think we hear this a lot. They, they end up in life-endangering situations using all sorts of awful methods, like coat hangers or bleach or other kind of deleterious chemicals. And it's a case that's been made. I saw saw it made by Caitlin Flanagan in The in the Atlantic. And then Alexandra, in your debate with Jill Filipovich earlier this year, I think she made that case as well. Alexandra, you and Ryan address this in the book. Why do you think that this is mistaken?
1: Well, the first and most important thing to remember on this point is that there's no evidence that this ever happened in huge numbers. Leading up to Roe, there were a number of pro-abortion doctors helping the, the legal team trying to push for, for legalized abortion, arguing that you know 5,000 to 10,000 women per year were dying in these illegal back alley abortions, as they put it. And in fact, if you look at the data, it was something closer to 150 to 300 women per year at most in the years leading up to Roe. And, and later in life, Bernard Nathanson, who was one of those pro-abortion doctors, the founder of NARAL and, and himself an abortionist, later became pro-life and admitted, look, we wanted abortion to be legal. We thought we were doing the right thing. And so we didn't care about whether the statistics that we used were true. And in fact, they weren't. He admitted to fabricating these these statistics about maternal mortality because they thought that it would make the case more sympathetic. And it did. This was one of the, the big rationales that swayed the Supreme Court in Roe was the idea that that this would save women's lives. So there's no evidence at all that this was ever a widespread problem. There's not any reason to think that it will be again. But even if it were, right, that that's not really the point. If if it's true that women feel as though they have to get abortions by any means, whether it's you know the legal and supposedly safe, which is of course not safe at all, or unsafe back alley, as the other side would put it that's a situation that that deserves an actual response from society other than, well, we'll just build abortion clinics on every corner, right? Women don't actually need abortion, regardless of the, the form it might take. Abortion is an act of violence against the woman's child, and therefore it's not good for the woman either. Even if she you know comes out in bodily good health, that's not a real solution for her. And it's certainly not a solution. It's in fact death for her child. So I think that argument really distracts from the heart of the debate which is what happens in an abortion procedure is it okay that this procedure kills a living human being and is that actually a solution for women in need
0: yeah how do you you know I, I, there's been a kind of lot of a, a lot of talk about this about policy and policy change what kind of policy alexandra do you see kind of being shaped to support the pro life movement and to support women who who feel like they need to get an abortion or feel like they have no, nowhere to turn, what in your mind does a system look like that supports women?
1: Well, there are a lot of different ways to come at this. I think the most Im- important thing, and it's not really much of a system, unfortunately, but I think that the most important thing that we point to in the book is the way in which marriage is the safest home for children and, and the best support for women, right? Women who, who get abortions almost always say that they're doing so because they're not being supported by the father of the child. I and mean, so what that suggests, and as statistics bear out, abortion, the fact that abortion is legal has actually intensified female poverty and child poverty and has intensified the, the negative conditions that drive women to, to seek abortion or to feel like they need abortion in the first place. And so I think we have to have, first and foremost, somehow a, a cultural revitalization of marriage, of the idea that sex belongs in marriage, that you know men and women commit to one another and then in that context commit to raising children in a loving environment. That has totally been destroyed by the sexual revolution, right? And so because of that, abortion has become viewed as necessary because it's kind of the backstop to this idea that that sex and procreation should be disconnected, that you know, men and women don't owe each other anything in a sexual relationship, that men can just walk away, and that's fine. And, and as a result, women have to have access to abortion so that they can walk away from the consequences of sex too. All of that has to be fixed as kind of a, the fundamental ground here before we can can talk about systems, in my view, and I think I know I know Ryan agrees with that. But as to the situation we actually find ourselves in, I think there's room for for policy disagreements here or, or policy discussions. I'm not sure exactly where I come down on all of these, but you know, things like crisis pregnancy centers are a great place to start. You know, helping women who actually do find themselves in this situation bring life into the world, you know, give birth to their children, support them, whether or not they're being supported by the father of their child. That's the model the pro-life movement has been putting forward for 50 years. It's certainly not everything we need to do, but I think it's a really good starting place. And the more we can build that system up and, and create more centers like that and, and give more aid to them, perhaps through, through state funding or through private charity, I think that's probably the, the biggest thing we can do policy-wise to start with.
0: Ryan, I'd like to kick that question over to you as well.
2: Sure. So, I mean, I agree with everything that Alexandra just said. So, I I don't want to repeat all of that, but I mean, maybe another way of 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 saying it. So, I am going to (laughs) repeat some of it. Just, I mean, I think one thing that conservatives can do and pro-lifers can do, and obviously those things are not the same, right? There's some some overlap, but it's important that the pro-life movement be a broad movement, that it's a bipartisan movement, that it's a ecumenical, interfaith, and you know, open to non-religious believers movement that, you know, it's important for pro-life tent to be the biggest tent of all because it's, you know, the most basic of human values, of human rights, of aspects of human flourishing and of the common good, right? So, um, you know, I'll preface the, the remark with that and say, we can make mistakes when we think it's an either or, right? And, and you can see this, you know, policy level of, you know, it's either a state issue or it's a federal issue. It's either a civil society issue or it's a legal issue. It's either a supply of abortion, you know, Planned Parenthood, or it's a demand for abortion. I think one helpful way of thinking about this is a series of both hands, right? And all the dichotomies I just mentioned can be rectified. I think, look, we need both good state policy and federal policy. We need both good civil society and good laws and the civil society side, things like the Pregnancy Resource Centers. Groups like the Sisters of Life. On, on the Jewish side, there's a, a group that I support in Shifra's Arms. It's a pro-life pregnancy center. You know, that focuses specifically on Jewish women experiencing unplanned pregnancies. So what those Sisters of Life do, you know, they're more distinctively Catholic, although although they serve all women. You know, many Catholics feel more comfortable with the Sisters of Life. Shifra's Arms uh, does something similar um, for Jewish women. We need those sorts of civil society things, but we also need good public policy. Um, And our colleague at EPBC, Patrick Brown, another EPBC colleague, Erica Bakiaki, are thinking through, you know, what's some prudent public policy that would assist women experiencing unplanned pregnancies? We've seen Texas enact the Texas Alternatives Mm -hmm. to Abortion Program. And this year when they did, or it was last year when they did SB8, which prohibited abortion and after a heartbeat could be detected, they added $100 million of funding to the Texas Alternatives to Abortion Program. And then the last thing I'll say is that That means that when it comes to public policy, public policy should focus both on prohibiting abortion, right? I mean, I I think it's an entirely appropriate role of the state to prohibit lethal violence in the womb. But I think it's also an entirely appropriate role of the state to provide tangible supports to mothers and to families, right? And so Patrick on our team is thinking through some of the family policy stuff. And that doesn't mean that everything that goes under the name um, support for mothers or family policy is actually prudent, is actually effective, is actually going to improve things. Like Many government programs, in fact, are counterproductive, right? And so I don't think we need to kind of give up on a healthy dose of realism in terms of you know what government programs help and what government programs hurt you know, some people have simply argued that, you know, you could extend how long uh, a mother is eligible uh, for Medicaid. How, when, when does the coverage kick in? You know, when does a child tax credit kick in? Does it kick in after the child is born or does it kick in once the child is conceived? Right. And, you know, these are things where we can take existing programs that, you know, for the most part people think are working and make tweaks to them rather than, you know, for, for people who are skeptical of kind of big government programs, creating something new that may, in fact, end up being counterproductive.
0: You mentioned this, the, the, the idea of a big tent uh, pro-life movement. And it, it um, brings up this idea that you both kind of mentioned in the book, which is the question of how our political culture has changed over time and, and with the kind of Supreme Court rulings. So in 1992, while campaigning for president, Bill Clinton described his support for abortion by saying it ought to be safe, legal, and rare. And that elides certain issues, of course, but whatever one may say about this, it was a way of indicating support for abortion while admitting that there's something kind of less than desirable about it or that we should avoid it. And in 1971, this was pretty remarkable to read, Democratic Senator Ted Kennedy wrote a letter to a constituent that you quote, and he said, "'Wanted or unwanted, I believe that human life, even at its earliest stages, has certain rights which must be recognized.' the right to be born, the right to love, the right to grow old. When history looks back at this era, it should recognize this generation as one which cared about human beings enough to halt the practice of war, to provide a decent living for every family, and to fulfill its responsibility to its children from the very moment of conception. Again, remarkable to read from the, from the late senator. And the view from the Democratic Party has changed quite a bit. So as you both point out in the book... In 2008, Democrats excised the word rare from their party platform. And in 2019, Tulsi Gabbard faced backlash for endorsing the safe, legal, and rare phrase in her quest for the uh, presidential nomination. I'm curious to hear both of your thoughts on this. What has happened politically or culturally that changed the mainstream Democratic view on this? And I don't just mean the safe, legal, and rare thing, but it, it seems like there were pro-life there were more pro-life Democrats, you know, decades ago than there are now. So maybe Alexandra, we can start with you and then Ryan.
1: Yeah, well we we definitely chronicle this story in great detail in the book and our our sixth chapter talking about how abortion has harmed our politics. And I think the the foremost example of that, you know, in addition to the way it's it's harmed our legal system and as a result, the fact that you know states have not been able to pass pro life laws, which is in a sense political the foremost way it's harmed our politics has been the corruption of the democratic party. Um, and the point we make in the book is think how much better Americans would be, how much better off we'd be if we could choose between two political parties that were pro-life, right? Neither party was committed to this grave injustice against the unborn child. We'd be in a much better position. Now I would still be conservative for many other reasons, but we would, you know, without a doubt, be a better country if neither party were committed to abortion as to what happened, I think it, it really was a, a political calculation on the part of Democrats. Many There are many Democrats who once were pro-life still kicking, um, Joe Biden being another major example, who just decided after Roe became a little bit more entrenched that it was uh, kind of politically beneficial to them to be pro-abortion. And I think the big reason for it is that it became talked about in our public conversation as a women's rights issue. None of these Democrats say, you know, I used to think it was an unborn child, and now I don't. I, I actually think this is just a clump of cells. You know, My view on the science has changed, and so therefore I, I, I'm no longer pro-life. What I said before it doesn't hold. That's never the story they give when they, they had a, a supposed change of heart. It was always, well, now I trust women, and I think this isn't really something for the government to be involved in. And, and I think the Democratic Party, unfortunately, saw this opening to turn it into a, a wedge issue, to turn it into an issue where they could kind of capture the, the feminist movement as a, an important wing of their party. And it really has worked to the point where Planned Parenthood has Democrats in lockstep, right? If a Democrat, Democratic politician comes out and says, actually, I don't support abortion until birth. I think it should be safe, legal and rare. Or, you know, God forbid, I'm actually pro-life. I don't think abortion should ever be legal. The Planned Parenthoods of the world, the abortion activists of the world are all too willing to torpedo them. Look at what happened to Dan Lipinski, the story we tell in the book, who used to be a long time Democratic representative from Illinois was unseated in a a primary a couple years back now because he was pro-life and Planned Parenthood and NARAL funded his progressive, very pro-abortion primary challenger and and the challenger won. And it was all because he supported the pro-life movement, right? He was opposed to abortion. So I think at this point, it's really a kind of, yeah, two hands in a glove. The Democratic politicians are reliant on the feminist movement to be an important part of the party. And they're really beholden to these major abortion rights advocacy groups that have a lot of money and a lot of, you know, influence.
0: Ryan, anything to, to add to that?
2: Sure. The only thing I would add is that I don't think we can understate the role that Roe itself and then Planned Parenthood v. Casey played in this. That because Roe uh, and Casey um, were interpreted by by lower courts and by the Supreme Court themselves to more or less uphold an unlimited right to abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy with only the most kind of like marginal protections really being allowed it forced democratic politicians to become more extreme in their views at least publicly what they endorsed about abortion because it became a, a situation in which any kind of second thoughts about abortion any safely going rare style rhetoric was viewed as you know an opening to saying well, the Supreme Court case is too extreme, too absolute in its support for abortion. And you're suggesting that we actually need some like common sense, reasonable compromises, the type of public policies that you see in Europe. I mean, this was one of the arguments that the state of Mississippi made during the Dobbs case, which was that I think it was something like 42 of the 47 European nations that allow abortion have abortion regulations that are more protective of life than the Mississippi law. Right? Mississippi law prohibited abortion after 15 weeks and was you know 42 of the 47 were either 15 weeks or earlier, right Many of them at 12 weeks. And so it's harder, you know as a, as a, a politician to say yes, that's the law I support if that law conflicts with Roe and Casey. And so one opportunity here is that now that uh, Roe and Casey are gone thanks to Dobbs, will pro-life Democrats get a second hearing? Because you know I, I'd much rather have the debate be between, Pro-life Republicans who say that they're in favor of six-week bills, heartbeat bills, or conception bills, and then pro-life Democrats who say they're in favor of twelve-week bills or fifteen-week bills, rather than where we're currently, which is a stalemate between all nine months, and then you know we can't even do the the fifteen weeks or we can't even do the twenty-week bill at the federal level. Um, so you know there's there's a there's an opportunity here for healthier politics that said, I'm not optimistic. It's an opportunity and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. Right? It's a theological virtue, but I'm not optimistic because unfortunately, those who have the most political power on the left side of the spectrum don't want to give an inch to what they view as their pro-life enemies on the other side of the political spectrum.
0: Ryan, do you think this is, the Roe also is in some ways responsible for this vast difference between Europe and the United States, as you point out? I mean, Europe tends to be thought of as more kind of economically on the left, socially on the left relative to the United States. But here, when it comes to abortion, it's the United States that seems to be much farther to the left than Europe.
2: Yeah, I think Roe does play a big factor there. I mean, I, I, I just think in general, the the role that the American um, courts have played, and in particular, the US Supreme Court, in so-called settling important, controversial, cultural questions, whether it be about marriage, whether it be about abortion, whether it's now, you know, some of the transgender issues, um, it really becomes a winner take all, all or nothing style situation. Whereas, you know, a lot of these um, situations that were decided democratically in Europe, you know, from my perspective, they went, uh, the the vote went on the wrong side. But at the end of the day, it wasn't as extreme as it would have been had it been an all or nothing that there, there was some a requirement of compromise, a requirement of a more moderate position in order to do it democratically. That said, I would not be happy if we end up where Europe is on pro-life laws. 93% of all abortions currently in the United States take place before 15 weeks. So if Mississippi's law is where the pro-life movement ends up, even if you know abortion patterns were to say the same, that would only save 7% of the babies who are being killed. Although what we what we can you know I think rationally expect is that many of those people the seven percent who are having abortions after 15 weeks when there wasn't a law would schedule their abortions a little bit earlier if they know that they have a legal limit which means many babies the vast majority of babies will be left unprotected uh, so, so so you know I wouldn't be satisfied if after you know 49 and a half years of the pro life movement working to overturn Roe the American kind of settlement looked like Europe's.
0: Right. And I want to get to both of your thoughts on what what an abortion ban would look like. Uh, But first, I want to backtrack a bit because, Alexandra, you mentioned this issue of of feminism. And and you and Jill Filipovich engaged in a debate earlier this year at Notre Dame, which I recommend everyone watch. It can be found on YouTube. And it was, resolved: legal access to abortion is necessary for the freedom and equality of women. The question of when life begins was not, I guess, the question at hand during the debate. And Jill stated very explicitly that there is nothing more important than sovereignty over one's body. So the question of when life begins was, in her mind, the the wrong question to be asking. She said, abortion helps women. It's not sufficient for the equality of women, but it is absolutely necessary. And and feminism requires that women have access to abortion. Alexandra, there's an entire chapter in the book on this. And uh, it argues that abortion actually harms women. Can you discuss this? Why is this so? How does the pro-life movement fit into feminism?
1: Yeah, this is probably my favorite thing to talk about from the book. And I'm not in the business of picking and choosing necessarily, but might be one of the most important sections because I think the most prevalent argument for abortion today is that women need it, right? Um, There's certainly the, you know, shout your abortion, celebrate your abortion camp. But most people who support abortion do so because they think, women will suffer without it. They think there are situations that women face that, that are unavoidable and that abortion is somehow this kind of safety hatch or kind of backdoor out of, out of suffering for women and the, that women need it and therefore it should be legal. So what we talk about in the book is very similar to what I, I said in the debate. And it, it all really does come down to whether or not the unborn child is a human being. And that's why, though, the question in the debate, as you point out, was whether or not uh, women need abortion to be free and equal we have to start with what abortion is. And and that was why it was so frustrating. I'm glad you you noticed that Jill wouldn't address that question. And I actually have debated her once before and the same thing happened. She just sort of skips over what happens in an abortion procedure. But I think it's, it's quite clear that answering the question of whether or not women need abortion to be free and equal requires understanding what abortion is. And we know, factually speaking, that abortion ends a human life and not only just a human life, which is immoral, of course, regardless, but the life of the woman's child. And so the, the proposition here is that women need the ability, the legal ability to kill, to choose intentionally to kill their own unborn child to save themselves, essentially, right? To make themselves free and equal, to be equal to men. And if that's our argument, I think if that's true of our society, we are a deeply impoverished society. And so in the book, we go back to, um, or we, we cite the work of our, our colleague, Erica Bakiaki, and some others who say basically, abortion is actually deeply anti-woman. Abortion takes the the male body as the norm, treats pregnancy, uh, childbearing, motherhood as some kind of deficiency or disease that sets women back. And rather than recognizing the fact that pregnancy is a unique role for women, a, a unique outcome of sex for women, and taking that seriously as a society by supporting women, our society has chosen to offer abortion, which is an act of violence. And we pretend that this is some kind of solution. We pretend that abortion helps women because it enables them to stay in the workplace or it enables them to, to walk away from sex in the same way that men can but they're not actually walking away, right? Women are, are instead being asked to commit violence against their own child. And so I think when we recognize this reality, as, as Jill did not do, and as most pro-abortion feminists do not do, um, we realize that this is actually not a solution at all. If women are, um, you know, set back or disadvantaged by the fact that they can become pregnant and men don't, our society owes women an actual, not solution necessarily, but support, right? Women are dependent, children are dependent, and our society owes them something far better than abortion. Abortion isn't a solution at all for anybody.
0: It seems like a lot of companies now that are offering funds. I forget which companies are doing this, but I've seen quite a few offering women funds to get abortions in states that allow them, that have really crummy kind of maternal leave policies and things like that. Even as you point out in the book, Planned Parenthood, I think has pretty poor maternal leave policies. Is that right? How do you see kind of ensuring, or how do you how do we ensure that that companies support women when they're pregnant or after having given birth it seems like the companies are just kind of taking the easy way out
1: yeah there. absolutely and i'm actually working on an article about this right now so you asked at the the perfect time but i think it's no coincidence at all that we see companies now coming out and saying they're going to help female employees travel to get abortions and we we hadn't seen certainly the wave of companies doing this when we were writing the book but In our seventh chapter, we do talk about big business and and how major corporations have become more and more supportive of abortion and opposed to pro-life laws in recent years. And and some of it, I think, is virtue signaling or just kind of wanting to have a more progressive brand publicly. But at the root of it is something far more sinister, which is, I think, deeply connected to what we're talking about in our chapter about how abortion harms women, which is we live in a society that has taken, in part because of abortion, has taken the male body as the norm and the ideal. And so our, our corporate culture takes male workers as the norm, right? The male worker is, in their view, always available, never pregnant, never, you know, at home with children, although men, of course, should be at home with their children. Some of the time, they should be invested fathers, they shouldn't be in the workplace all the time either. But they're not like women, right? Women become pregnant, women most often stay home with children once they become mothers, or they, they want to work part time, or they need more flexible arrangements. And all of this makes women less available To the company. And that's not ideal in a a corporate culture that values the always available man. And so abortion actually props up all of that. And that's why we see companies saying, Oh no, don't worry about it, female employees. If you get pregnant, well, we're happy to, to help pay for you to go somewhere where you can get an abortion, because doing so is far easier and far cheaper than paying for prenatal care for pregnant women, for you know, paying for maternal leave. You know, coming up with arrangements to help women stay in the workplace part time if that's what they want to do. All of that is more complicated, more costly for companies than having men or women who are, uh, you know, using contraception or using abortion to pretend as though they're men, so as to always be available to the workplace.
0: You know, Erica Bakiaki was on Ezra Klein's podcast a couple of months ago to discuss, you know, the question of abortion. It was a great interview, and I think distilled the two views on this matter so well. Erica said this, that there's ways to think about abortion where having those late-stage abortions are, are worse. She said, obviously, they're the same. I think morally she was talking uh, about them being the same. But she said, you're still taking the child's life, but they're worse for society. They're worse for the mother. They're sort of a worse moral act. And I hope we can take that seriously as well. I don't want to overinterpret what she's saying. But Erica seems to be indicating, I guess, a perspective about prudential policy. And the idea isn't fleshed out on the podcast. Again, I don't want to overinterpret uh, or or um, put words in her mouth. What do you make of this idea? As you think about policy moving forward with Roe being overturned, as a matter of prudential policy, how does one approach restrictions on abortion? How ought one think about you know things like rape, which, as you point out in the book, accounts for one percent of abortions? What does kind of a, a policy look like in your minds, Ryan? Maybe we can start with you.
2: Sure. Um, so, so I think, you know, one starting point is that, you know, we should do whatever is going to be most effective at protecting the most people from harm, meaning that we shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good enough, or the good enough that is achievable right now, which is simply to say that given where public opinion is today, the ideal abortion policy is not enactable in most jurisdictions. And so I think we need to be realistic about what sort of incrementalism is gonna be required while seeing that the ultimate goal is to ensure that every life is protected in law and then is welcomed in life. I mean, that that's the, the ultimate goal. So what that means in the short run between now and then might mean that you know a federal law is a 15 week uh, bill. And I think if it's a 15 week bill, you probably don't need as a, as a practical matter exceptions for rape, because in that case, someone who has been victimized in that way has 15 weeks to seek out the abortion, right? Uh, if it's going to be a bill that, let's say you're passing, we're recording this and it was just yesterday, I forget which state passed a bill prohibiting um, abortion more or less at conception with rape exceptions for the first 12 weeks, for example, right? And so so in that case, they, they wanted to acknowledge a situation in which someone does not bear you know, responsibility for the fact that she is pregnant. Although I think from a moral perspective, she does bear responsibilities to that child. As a legal matter, they were saying there was going to be a window in which we were going to allow abortion, and it might be politically necessary to do so in order to protect the 99% of the other babies, right? And so I think that's what, again, I I listened to the entire episode, uh, the podcast with Ezra and Erica, and I thought, um, both of them did great. I thought it was a really good discussion. I don't remember that exact quote from Erica that you're reading, but but I imagine that's what you know Erica is getting at is that we don't want to rush to impose the most protective law, even if it was morally justified. And I don't think the um, circumstances of someone conception determines whether or not they have dignity and whether or not they have a right to life, or whether or not other human beings have duties and obligations, um, towards them. So I, so I, as, a, as a moral matter, I don't think abortion is justified in the case of rape, but as a legal matter, we might have to craft laws that do have rape exceptions in order to make them enactable in certain jurisdictions. While we work to educate the public and to persuade the public, uh, that even in those situations, an act of lethal violence doesn't make the situation better, right? Uh, adding more violence, as a response to a situation that was created by violence and an act of of rape is itself an act of violence that doesn't uh, solve the problem for the mother and it clearly doesn't benefit the child. Uh, The other thing I would say is that every pro-life law that exists that we know of, and Alexandra has done a really good job in documenting this in a long form essay she wrote for National Review and then uh, two two scholars for the Charlotte Logier Institute have also compiled all of these laws. Every existing pro-life law that meaningfully protects um, children from, from abortion is crafted in a way that very clearly states that medical mm-hmm. care that is intended to save the life of the mother, and even you know, more broadly to save kind of significant bodily damage uh, from, from the mother experiencing, that those medical procedures are not prohibited because those medical procedures, properly understood, are not abortions. Um, so, you know, cases like ectoptic pregnancy, where the um, embryo implants outside of the uterus, uh, frequently in the fallopian tube, cases like uterine cancer, cases like a miscarriage that's leading to infection or leading to sepsis, none of those forms of treatment where you have a medical procedure intended to treat a you know legitimate real medical condition that the mother is experiencing. None of those treatments should be understood as abortions. And none of those treatments under all of the state pro-life laws um, that both Alexandra and the Charlotte Lozier scholars looked at would be prohibited. And so I also think that's important that we understand that even though the unborn child will die as a result of those procedures, as a foreseen but unintended side effect of the procedure, properly understood those are not abortions and they should not be prohibited.
0: Alexandra, anything else to add to that?
2: Yeah, I don't,
1: I don't have a ton to add to to what Ryan mentioned, but I would just say I think there's a, a kind of delicate balance here for pro-lifers to find. And somehow, despite having 50 years to prepare for the end of Roe, we don't seem to be the most prepared that we could have been. But I think we have to find this balance between, kind of like Ryan mentioned, not letting the, the perfect become the enemy of the good. And the way we put it in the book, I think, is what I would hope all policymakers and kind of pro-life organizations would be pushing for, which is, to try and get the most protective pro-life laws we can while always keeping in mind and, and making it very clear publicly that our ultimate goal is the total abolition of abortion. And so that doesn't mean that tomorrow the only thing any of us should accept or lawmakers should put forward is a total ban on all abortions, including in you know, cases of rape. But we should say we want a 15-week ban because that's where the country is, or we want a 20-week ban because that's where the country is, whatever whatever the kind of consensus is at the moment while also saying publicly and very clearly, uh, this is not the most just law, right? We want a 15-week protection for unborn children because unborn children are always human beings from the moment of conception. And using those bills, using the 15-week bill or the heartbeat bill or whatever the, the kind of most popular vehicle is at the moment, to make the case, to make the messaging case and win the messaging battle to say, this is always a human being, right? And so while we're okay with drawing the line here at 15 weeks for now, why not 14 weeks? Why not 13 weeks? And and helping people who don't agree with us yet through talking about those bills to understand that it's always the same human being, that he or she always has moral dignity. And Kind of like the case we make in the book, abortion is actually not good for any of us, and I think that's a key piece. That's really why we we framed the book the way we did. That's a key piece of the pro life messaging battle, right? Many people don't think about abortion as having anything to do with them. It's like, well, it hasn't happened to me. If it happened to me, I'm not sure what I would do. Maybe I wouldn't choose abortion, but I don't want to control other people's bodies, other people's lives. The government shouldn't be involved. None of that is true, right? Abortion has made. And, you know, destroyed so many elements of our society. It's harmed everything it has touched and that has harmed all of us. And so I think it's important for pro-lifers to be able to explain that as we advocate on behalf of any given policy, we have to be able to explain to our neighbors that abortion is not good for them either. It's not good for their children, for their spouse, for for any of us.
0: Alexandra and Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks,
2: Erin. Hey, thanks for having us. It was a pleasure to be with you.
0: This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.